The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. When the Civil War began, Americans north and south recognized it as a landmark in the nation's destiny, following a course set by the founders in 1776. In the north, 1861 marked a new revolution to once again reject the rule of a haughty landed aristocracy and replace it with a government where all men are created equal. But in the South, 1861 meant a new revolution to reject a haughty monarchy that imposed taxation without representation. The battle for the meaning of the war would prove as vital and longer lasting than the war itself. We'll learn how that battle was fought today from Andre Flesch, author of The Revolution of 1861, The American Civil War in the Age of Nationalist Conflict. That's today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from Civil War Talk Radio headquarters in the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But not speaking for the college, the university, the department, or anybody else, just myself. And I know our guest today will certainly do the same thing. It's a beautiful spring day here in the spring of 2012. Uh, and we're enjoying the nice weather, but uh, staying out of the pollen, the yellow dusting of pollen that coats everything in eastern North Carolina. Uh, newcomers to the area soon learn that that's why the water running off your roof in a rainstorm is the color of melted butter. Uh, there's pollen everywhere, and it's sometimes good to stay indoors and just listen to Civil War talk radio or present it, as the case may be. It has been a, an interesting week historically, locally. We had National History Day this past Wednesday. High school and middle school students brought their uh, projects their tabletop and website projects to Greenville, uh, where here at East Carolina we host the regional National History Day competition. And 
I think we have the largest one in the state. It's a, a fun day to have all the students on campus running about, uh, thrilled by the student center and its snack bar and pool tables and other things that promise to them the, the fun of college. But it's interesting for us as, as faculty to see what the students are working on. There are also uh, other things happening locally in the Civil War world. In the past week, uh, I've been in communication with some students in the archaeology program who are headed to the uh, battlefield at New Bern. I hope I'm not giving away secrets uh, here. I don't think it's uh, they're doing it at midnight or anything. But they've uh, got a, a clue from a map in the New Bern Historical Society as to where there may be some uh, Confederate bodies that were buried by Union soldiers after the battle. Uh, a map that in the archives of the New Bern Historical Society points out where they might be. And no records have been found yet showing that these, these bodies were moved after the battle, so they're going to be taking the ground-penetrating radar next week and looking for them. I'm hoping to go with with them and see what's happening down there. It's uh, an interesting thing uh, to do. It combines interdisciplinary studies from anthropology and archaeology and history. And uh, uh, you know, hunting for bodies is, is always an interesting activity and not always legal, but in, in this case, uh, of course, if, if any remains are found, they will be, be treated appropriately. But the uh, the adventure itself is, is interesting, and I'll, I'll let you know what what turns up, so to speak, in this search. The uh, uh, In the meantime, you can keep track of what's happening on Civil War Talk Radio with the website www.impedimentsofwar.org. It is maintained by Mark Gaffney. It is the single most interesting website on the entire internet, and you'll want to visit there. And while doing so, feel free to donate to the book fund here at Civil War Talk Radio through the miracle of PayPal, send $20 to Civil War TR at AOL.com. I'll be happy to send you a copy of All for the Regiment or Did Lincoln Own Slaves or uh, if I write something else, uh, you could get that too. So that's always uh, welcome to support the purchase of books when publishers are recalcitrant in sending their copies to me. That's not the case this week, though, and uh, won't be for some weeks hereafter. Looking ahead, I should add, next week we'll have Donald Stoker talking about the grand design strategy in the U.S. Civil War. And then comes Good Friday, no live show. And April 13th, no live show. We'll be away for two weeks. April 13th is the meeting in Decatur, Illinois, of the Association of Lincoln Presenters. And I look forward to speaking with them, so I'll be on the road that, that weekend uh, talking to uh, dozens, even hundreds sometimes, of people all looking somewhat like Abraham Lincoln. It's it's a surreal sight uh, talking to these people who are among the most dedicated uh, students of the Civil War era, and of Lincoln in particular. At least many of them are. Uh, uh, they're, they're certainly not in it for the money. So it's it's good to see what it is uh, that they're doing and talk to them about uh, Civil War history and uh, Lincoln in particular, and I'm looking forward to that. We'll have various folks uh, with us when we come back. Earl Hess later in the month uh, has written lots of books on the Civil War, most recently The, the War in the West. I've gotten some uh, comments online asking, what about the war in the West where where the decision actually took place, west of the Appalachians? 
and no sooner asked than uh, received, uh, Earl Hess will be with us to talk about just that. But today we're talking about the Civil War in the Age of Nationalist Conflict. That's the subtitle of a book called The Revolution of 1861 by Andre M. Flesch. Uh, Dr. Flesch, are you there? I am. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I, I don't think you and I have run into each other on the the uh, convention trail or at any uh, meetings I can think of, but uh, I, I hope uh, we can go by first names, as is, is the way on this show. It, it takes too long to, to say my last name anyway. <laughs> uh, so, so please call me Jerry, if, if you don't mind. Great. Perfect. Uh, wonderful. Well, uh, I'm very interested in... Uh, in this book, which I had the, the pleasure of reading this week, published by University of North Carolina Press. Uh, but I always like to ask folks, especially those I, I haven't uh, been able to meet before, a little bit uh, about yourself. The dust jacket tells me you're assistant professor of history at Castleton State College. Uh, tell our listeners uh, where Castleton State is. Sure. Uh, we're in Vermont, uh, in uh, the Green Mountain State. Uh, and uh, how long have you been there? Uh, this is my sixth year. And, and uh, what what brought you to Castleton State? Uh, well, when I uh, graduated from the University of Virginia, I uh, undertook a national search. So uh, uh, partly it was uh, the vagaries of the job market, but I was really excited to uh, come to New England. Uh, I grew up in western New York, so I was uh, somewhat familiar with the with the area, and uh, it was a it was a perfect fit for me because I teach not only U.S. history but also uh, Latin American history here at Castleton. So I'm able to uh, think uh, beyond the borders of uh, of the United States in my my teaching life as well as my research. Excellent. Is how big is Castleton? Uh, we have about two thousand undergraduate students. Uh, that, that's uh, we've got. Uh, 27,000 overall here at East Carolina and I was wow. talking to a student the other day she was preparing a multidisciplinary studies major for herself where students create their own program if, if there's nothing quite what they want and it, it struck me that a school like this is good for a student who's willing to put together uh, his or her own program and use all the different resources and create their own major and uh, tap into everything that's here uh, which might not be possible on a small campus. But conversely, it's really easy to fall through the cracks at a place like this and yeah, do the bare imagine. minimum. And, and, and I'm, I guess at your school, you must know a fair percentage of the history majors on site. Oh, yeah. I, I know all of them, and I know also uh, all my students by, by sight and name in my general education classes, too, so my U.S. surveys. Some students <laughs> probably don't like that, but uh, many do. <laughs> Well, I, 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 and they should appreciate it. It's really, uh, it, I, I work at trying to learn everyone's name in a, a large classroom by the end of the semester, but I can't always uh, guarantee I can do that. And it's, uh, there are times I, I look enviously at the small teaching environment. Uh, so, so that would be something to do. But there are compensations in both directions. Sure. So you've written here about the, uh, revolution of 1861. Well, let me ask one more question uh, yeah. on your own interest. Uh, did this grow out of your dissertation? It did. So, if you you've obviously followed this for a long time, was the Civil War an interest of yours going back before graduate school? Yeah, absolutely. 
uh, as I said, I grew up in western New York in the city of Rochester, which, uh, is, as you know, is one of the first 19th century boom towns. Uh, that's where Frederick Douglass chose to settle. So uh, you could be inundated in the, in the 19th, immersed in the 19th century uh, if you wanted to be. Uh, but it, it wasn't until I was a young teen or, or tween, I guess as they say today, that I became especially interested in the Civil War. And uh, I'd attribute it to, to three things. Uh, first uh, was the release of the movie Glory, uh-huh. which was the, uh, the first big war movie I, I was uh, allowed to see in the theater. And uh, that was very exciting uh, and uh, an inspirational story to, to me at the time. Uh, then the second thing, which I'm sure you can guess, uh, right about the same time uh, Ken Burns' The Civil War right. aired uh, for the first time. And uh, I was uh, riveted uh, to the TV for, for the week or so that it, that it uh, took to air that. Uh, and then uh, thirdly, uh, when I was in eighth grade, my family took... Uh, the obligatory trip to Washington, D.C., and uh, along the way we stopped at Gettysburg. So uh, doing that you know, I, had me hooked uh, and, uh, as far as the Civil War era went. It wasn't really until I was uh, an undergraduate in college, though, that I thought of the Civil War as something I could, I could do for the rest of my life. Uh, I took a course on the Civil War era at Syracuse University, with uh, Professor Scott Strickland, and I can still remember the reading list. Uh, we read works by Eric Foner and Drew Faust and Charles Royster, The Freedom Project, uh, and that opened a whole new world of scholarly uh, history on the Civil War to me, and I started to think, well, maybe I want to study more of that uh, in my future. That, that's, uh, that's very interesting. I'm uh... I won't say how much older, but it, enough that, uh, that Ken Burns came along when I was I was in graduate school at the time. Yeah. But the uh, the, the stopping off at a battlefield on, on a, the obligatory Washington trip was something I experienced in the 1960s. It was at Antietam instead of Gettysburg, but it yeah. it sunk the hook deep uh, at me in much the same way. I, that it's interesting how that continues. But and I'm also taken by the the idea of that moment when when someone reading about the Civil War thinks, what is is there more to it? What differentiates the the works of uh, a novelist from those of a historian, from a popular historian like Bruce Catton, from from a professional like James McPherson? What uh, what what? How can you get deeper into this? And 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 what 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 do you believe? And uh, for some of us, you end up uh, spending a lifetime uh, studying that and, and, and trying to see where the uh, where the real sources are, what what you can really find out. So, Great. in this case, you you've looked at at the the war, and I'm sure you've had the question asked, you know, what more is there to say about the Civil War? <laughs> uh, but but you've you've brought something up here by by looking at it in a broader context and. Your subtitle is, is The Civil War in the Age of Nationalist Conflict. If we look at the uh, uh, the nationalist conflicts of the 19th century, uh, for our readers who lives, whose reading lives begin in 1861 and end in 1865, and, and there aren't really many of those, but if, if there were any, uh, give us a, a quick outline of some of the revolutionary conflicts that 
that shaped the intellectual background of, of uh, the Civil War generation? What what had they read about in the papers for the last 30, 40 years? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Well, the period before the Civil War is usually categorized uh, by historians as the age of revolution, and uh, we traditionally uh, begin that with the American Revolution uh, of 1776, which, of course, was uh, was on the minds of Northerners and Southerners uh, almost 100 years later. Uh, but uh, quite a bit happened uh, between 1776 and 1861. Uh, shortly after uh, the American Revolution, of course, there was the French Revolution, uh, which uh, was quite a bit more radical uh, than uh, uh, the American Revolution. Uh, the uh, Haitian Revolution, uh, as an outgrowth of the French Revolution, produced the first uh, or the second uh, independent country uh, in the Western Hemisphere and the first uh, to be uh, governed by uh, people of African descent uh, and ex-slaves. Uh, and uh, as we move into further into the 19th century, uh, the uh, the rest of uh, the Americas followed in, in fighting wars uh, for independence from Spain. Um, in 1830, uh, there was a, uh, a second revolution in France. Uh, the Poles uh, attempted to uh, break free uh, of Russian rule. Uh, and, of course, in 1848, uh, there was a European-wide revolution uh, beginning in France, uh, but uh, eventually uh, extending uh, itself to the German states, the Italian states, uh, Austria and Hungary, uh, and uh, even uh, Ireland, uh, which had a, uh, a brief and, and abortive uh, revolution against British rule. So, revolution is in the air. Everybody is, is, every adult in 1860 has known about this going on elsewhere in the world. Yes. Uh, uh, what about, uh, now, those people who, who are in those revolutions, uh, they don't stay. Well, those revolutions don't all succeed. I guess let, let's lay that out. Um, right. Eighteen forty-eight in particular uh, is, is met by a wave of reaction. Right. Yeah. The the eighteen forty-eight revolutions uh, almost universally fail, uh, which uh, did uh, lead to a wave of exiles uh, leaving Europe and uh, searching uh, for for a new life uh, and, and an ability to live out their political principles in America, uh, and those. People, um, you know, since uh, have popularly become known as the 1848ers uh, or the 48ers, as they're called, and uh, many of them fought both in Europe and then yet again uh, in America during the Civil War. So there are some pretty well-known names among them in terms of Civil War figures. Uh, Carl Schurz leaps to yep. mind as, as one that listeners have heard of as division commander at Gettysburg. Sure. Uh, uh, think of others, uh, Thomas Maher, the uh, Iron Brigade, or, or the Irish Brigade, rather. Correct. Uh, another leader. So, and, and these are all people who come to the United States because what, because of what they tried and, and failed to do. Um, well, Schertz and Maher, in particular, uh, as German and Irish, uh, end up bringing some some interesting ideas. What we'll do is take a short break right now and come back and talk about how how not every revolutionary brought the same interpretation of revolution to the United States uh, when they came here. And to find out more about that, we'll ask our guest, Andre Flesch, author of The Revolution of 1861, The American Civil War in the Age of Nationalist Conflict.
We'll do that when we come back in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market are you looking to improve your personal or professional branding what about your business we've got a program that will help streamline your image management tune in to marketing matters hosted by yasmine anderson smith Your business and public image is important to your customers' perceptions. And in this day and age, how you market yourself or your company can make the difference between running a successful business and shutting it down. Marketing Matters can be heard every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Andre Flesch, that's spelled F-L-E-C-H-E when you're looking up the book online. Uh, he's the author of The Revolution of 1861, The American Civil War in the Age of Nationalist Conflict. And we've been talking about the nationalist conflicts, uh, revolutions in particular, where uh, groups of people sought to either create new nations or break away from other nations or reconfigure the governments of their nations as as nations rather than monarchies, private property of the king, uh, all throughout the 19th century, late 18th, early 19th century, uh, culminating in the wave of revolutions of 1848. Uh, which failed and which led many of the uh, uh, defeated revolutionaries to come to the United States. Uh, Andre, what I found interesting in, in your discussion of this was how uh, how actively uh, people came to the United States to pursue these revolutionary goals, but how different they were. Uh, in particular, uh, the, the Germans who set up uh, their, their own institutions uh, on one, well, I'll, I'll let you tell, the, the, the Germans on one side and the Irish uh, revolutionaries bringing quite a different sensibility. Uh, why did they, how did they differ and why? Sure. Well, the, uh, the revolutions of 1848, well, they all had some common goals, were, were very disparate movements, uh, all responding to uh, unique problems and conditions uh, with uh, in uh, Europe's regions. Uh, the Irish were, of course, uh, most interested in breaking free from what they saw as tyrannical rule by uh, the oppressive English, uh, this uh, empire that uh, they believed was uh, preventing them from 
exercising uh, their right to uh, to national uh, self-determination. Uh, and uh, beyond that, of course, uh, the enduring uh, discrimination, um, ba- uh, religious-based uh, discrimination. So uh, for the Irish, uh, the revolutions were about uh, establishing a, a free uh, nation, uh, breaking away from centralized control. Uh, the German situation was, was different altogether. Uh, the German states in those days were uh, not unified. Uh, they were you know, a collection of uh, uh, independently run princedoms and, and kingdoms. And um, many of the German patriots were hoping to construct a united nation uh, that would uh, unite all German-speaking peoples uh, under one nation. And they particularly hoped that that nation would uh, extend basic civil liberties like freedoms of speech, freedoms of the press, uh, universal suffrage um, to uh, to all of its peoples. So what so revolution is a broad uh, a broad category and, and brings these different ideas to the United States. We had uh, Adam Aronson was a guest on the show a couple yeah. of weeks ago, and we had a very interesting discussion about uh, St. Louis and its role. So I was interested to see the focus you have on St. Louis again. It, it, there have been more books about St. Louis or Missouri in the war in the last year and a half. Um, Bowman's book and uh, uh, the, the book on, on bank fraud uh, in Missouri, it, it, it really is the hot topic. Uh, Missouri is the place to be in Civil War studies. And you've got a chapter here where you talk about St. Louis. How, how do these revolutionary views play out there? Yeah. Well, St. Louis is interesting because it attracted a lot of these 48ers, especially the Germans. Uh, and I think part of that was because uh, a promoter uh, had um, uh, played up uh, the, the American West uh, and the German press is this, uh, you know, State of nature, where you know you might uh, uh, be able to you know, find freedom and liberty uh, on the American frontier. So uh, many Germans headed for the West uh, when they arrived, uh, but it was also a, a city that had many Irish and uh, and indeed uh, many other uh, ethnic groups uh, living there. So it was uh, it's the perfect it was the perfect place to to take a look at how uh, Europeans. Uh, responded uh, to the outbreak of the Civil War uh, and brought their ideas with them, um, of course, because, you know, too, it was a border state. It was divided. It was unclear uh, where Missouri would go. Uh, would it be a part of the uh, Confederacy or would it remain in the Union? So uh, the conflict there uh, was particularly intense uh, early in the war. And uh, the Germans sided uh, almost universally uh, with the Union. Uh, they compared... Uh, southern slaveholders to the aristocrats uh, they were hoping to escape in Europe. Uh, they, they saw uh, big plantations with slaves, uh, very similar to big estates uh, uh, with serfs. Uh, and uh, these people, they believed on both sides of the Atlantic, were dangerous to liberty. Uh, it was precisely these types of people that uh, were uh, preventing uh, uh, the average person from uh, from voting or from participating in government. Uh, so uh, they had no interest uh, in joining the Confederacy. Uh, they uh, believed that the Union uh, was you know, was their best hope uh, to achieve the political goals they'd, they'd failed to achieve in Europe. Uh, the Irish, on the other hand, had a, in St. Louis especially, had an uneasy relationship with the Germans. They 
uh, generally uh, had religious differences, the Irish uh, predominantly Catholic, whereas the, the Germans free-thinking Protestants, and, and indeed many of the German 48ers were um, you know, religious skeptics uh, who uh, would have been for uh, the separation of church and state. Uh, so the Irish uh, gravitated, in St. Louis anyway, uh, to uh, the southern cause uh, as, uh, as a cause of national independence against uh, a centralized tyranny, uh, very much um, very similar uh, to what they uh, had seen in their homeland. So they, they uh, as a uh as we talked with uh, with Adam Aronson a few weeks ago, this leads eventually to, to bloodshed in the streets of St. Louis when the uh, the various militias uh, come in conflict with each other. The uh, the the people who, who when the war breaks out are are quick to to take up arms on both sides. Uh, one thing I find interesting is the the German. Uh, the the Turner movement, yeah. it, 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 which leads to becomes a nucleus of some regiments uh, in the Union Army, uh, but the Turners combine uh, politics and gymnastics. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's like fish and bicycles. Uh, why? Tell us something about the the, the Turnverein. Yeah, it's a peculiar excuse me peculiar peculiar nineteenth uh, century type of organization. Uh, they. Uh, believed that uh, by uh, promoting physical fitness, uh, you would promote active citizenship that uh, you know that could uh, resist oppression and, and indeed could you know stand up for and fight for rights. So uh, these uh, these Turner clubs, uh, Turner societies, as they were called, uh, would combine the two. Uh, you'd come and uh, exercise and uh, and build your physique, and then you know afterwards uh, you know, have a, a seminar on political ideology. So you head on to Gold's Gym and then uh, then watch CNN, uh, I guess, would be the modern equivalent of uh, while you're working out. But it, when when the war begins, we see a number of uh, uh, regiments. You mentioned some of them, uh, the, the Hecker Regiment from uh, Illinois, uh, the, uh, it's the 32nd Indiana, is a, a mostly German regiment. Uh, and and the leaders of these units, it's not that they're just getting together because they all speak the same language or share the culture, but they they are all politically motivated in the same way. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, exactly. They uh, many of these Turner clubs go you know whole you know fully over uh, you know become uh, Union regiments, uh, and uh, they many of them were commanded by Forty Eighters. That that was certainly true in St. Louis. Almost all of the. Uh, the units that marched uh, on Camp Jackson uh, as the war begins were, were commanded by 48ers, and uh, they used the Turner, uh, the Turner Hall uh, as, a, as their uh, site to congregate and to arm and uh, to prepare for battle. And uh, many of them actually commented, remarked uh, as, as the troops marched off to Camp Jackson that uh, this was uh, like 1848 all over again uh, in, in America this time. Now, that St. Louis then becomes a place of uh, maybe disillusionment is too strong a word, but uh, for these same people, and and it's not just in St. Louis, but throughout the Union, you highlight the the problem the North has at the beginning of the war and throughout the war, to, or at least certainly through the first two years of the war, with this idea that they are fighting for freedom, they are representing the revolutionary values of the 48ers who 
opposed the aristocrats, the landholders. They, they characterized the slave power as being the same sort of people. But the southern argument, which, which the Irish immigrants take up, is on its face more appealing. Uh, we're fighting for freedom. Well, you know, you you wanted the Greeks to be free from the Turks. You wanted the uh, the Belgians to be free from the Dutch. You wanted uh, every other the Hungarians uh, to be free from the Empire. You wanted the Poles to be free from Russia. Why don't you want the South to be free from the uh, omnipotent federal government? How how did the North answer that charge? Right. Well, that was a big problem for uh, Lincoln and and other Northerners uh, as the war began. Uh, They were in this ironic position, uh, well aware that Americans uh, in the United States of America, uh, since the American Revolution, had always applauded nationalist movements, uh, had always applauded revolutions, uh, had always uh, applauded uh, self-expression of uh, the, uh, the world's peoples. Uh, and here they are now in this uh, conundrum, uh, you know, facing a, uh, a rebellion, a revolution in their own country, uh, and then having to explain uh, why they were uh, now taking the side of centralization or authority. So uh, in the first few years of the war, uh, northern officials uh, had to figure out how to balance uh, those two. Uh, and in general, uh, they argued that uh, because the United States they believed was uh, the uh, you know the best hope uh, of liberty for mankind on earth uh, it you couldn't break it up that um, by destroying uh, this country um, all the you know, the cause of liberal government uh, across the world would falter so uh, they you know try they attempt to make the point uh, that uh, you can't uh, have uh, liberty uh, with uh, unrestrained anarchy with what they saw as uh, an unjustified uh, rebellion or revolution against uh, uh, a, a government that had been upholding liberty. And that, again, becomes a focus in uh, in St. Louis as well as elsewhere. When, uh, when, when Fremont, the, the Union commander in Missouri, orders the emancipation of slaves in 1861 and Lincoln has to overrule him, uh, now you've got this sort of direct conflict between uh, the radical values of the 48ers and what the Union government is saying, which is they're, they're not going to emancipate slaves. They're not fighting for that. They're just fighting for this union that can, in theory, sustain uh, su- sustain uh, liberty, but, but in fact, at the moment, is not going to do anything for the liberty of the slaves. That um, This makes me think of Gary Gallagher's work on, on the Union War, He's tried to recapture for modern readers how passionate Americans felt about the concept of union, uh, which to us seems a little bit sterile or, or abstract. Maybe we just take it for granted so much. Uh, and it's easy to grasp the concept of, of Confederate independence, but harder to grasp the northern concept and it strikes me what you're arguing that it was hard to grasp at the time as well that there were those who really thought union was not enough to fight for yeah that's true uh fremont in particular was was wildly popular uh, with 48ers uh, as was uh, franz siegel who was also a 48er and, and carl schertz uh those uh generals have, have taken a beating among military historians uh, because they weren't 
uh, at all successful uh, on the battlefield, uh, but this, uh, the fact that they um, represented uh, for, for many Americans, especially many uh, European Americans, ethnic Americans, uh, not only uh, the, an old world ethnicity, but also political ideology uh, that uh, opposed slavery, that favored uh, universal suffrage, that uh, favored liberty and the rights of man. Uh, this was uh, incredibly appealing uh, to to many Americans, and um, it does put Lincoln in a difficult situation. Uh, you know, when he had to overrule Fremont and disappoint many of those people, and uh, it's precisely this issue uh, that he's responding to uh, when, in in late uh, 1861, uh, he uh, uh, he explains uh, to the nation that uh, he uh, hesitated uh, to turn. Uh, the conflict into what he called a remorseless revolutionary struggle. Um, eventually it might get there, but uh, uh, 1861 was too early to take it in that direction. He, he, he does try to avoid that. The, the importance of this, uh, there was, at the time, it's hard to overstate, I once came across in an antique store a deck of cards, uh, a card game that was published in 1862, and it was just a game that had the names of battles or, or generals on each card, and you had to match match a pair. It was, it was uh, I forgot what the, the card game is uh, where you do that. But it was interesting to see what people in 1862 thought was important. It had the names of all the generals you'd expect, McClellan and Fremont and others, and Shiloh and uh, Bull Run. But one of the events on one of the cards was Zagonyi's Charge, which I had to look up. Uh, he was, was the one of these 48ers and a commander of Fremont's bodyguard who led a, a rather minor cavalry charge at the Battle of Springfield in 1861. But the fact that he was up there with Shiloh and McClellan on this deck of cards published in 1862 makes me think it was a household name for a while. Uh, people were, were keenly aware of what was happening there and, and, and what Fremont was up to. Well, the what changes all this, obviously... Uh, in terms of what the North uh, claims it's fighting for, uh, in terms of its revolutionary heritage, is emancipation. Uh, let, let's take another short break so we can launch into that major topic. When we come back in just a moment, talking today with Andre M. Flesch, author of The Revolution of 1861. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Step up to the microphone. View the finalists right now on VoiceAmericaKids.tv. America's next great star is waiting to be discovered. Step up to the microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. 
show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Ant Flesh, author of The Revolution of 1861, The American Civil War in the Age of Nationalist Conflict. We've been talking about some of these conflicts and how Americans, both North and South, tried to conceptualize of the Civil War in America as fitting into the pattern of revolution and uh, nationalist aspirations that, that flamed into conflict across Europe and uh, South and, and Central America throughout the uh, 19th century, late 18th century. It uh, One can easily enough imagine Confederates claiming to be freedom fighters wanting to assert their own national independence. But the North likewise claimed they were fighting for revolutionary ideals. The the issue changes in 1862 with the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, Lincoln describes the United States uh, in his annual message that year as the last best hope of Earth to preserve uh, human freedom. Uh, the best hope, one, one can understand that. Uh, why does he say this is the last hope? Well, I think uh, I would argue that he very much has... Uh, the uh, the results of a of almost a century's worth of uh, of revolution on his mind uh, when he describes uh, the United States that way he uh, realizes that uh, the French Revolution uh, never lived up to its promise uh, he realizes that uh, in 1848 uh, the revolutionaries almost universally fail uh, in uh, establishing uh, liberal governments and overthrowing monarchy so uh, in uh, by the middle of the Civil War uh, it appeared that uh, perhaps uh, monarchical government uh, might uh, might win out uh, in this age of revolution, uh, and uh, preservation of the United States uh, in, in that uh, context would become the last hope uh, for uh, representative government on Earth. Uh, you argue here that the the mission of Mason and Slidell, the Confederate diplomats, that was cut short when they were seized uh, in the, the Trent affair, December eighteen sixty one. Uh, that their their mission to Europe to convince European nations that this the Confederacy was a legitimate nation and should be endorsed, uh, you contend that 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 might have had more success than most historians think. Uh, what what uh, g- gives you that? Uh, uh, what, what's your 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 thinking behind that? Well, I, uh, I I wanted mostly to make the point that they come prepared to talk about. Uh, the uh, the European context, uh, the the Southerners uh, very much understood that, uh, with uh, especially liberals in in Britain uh, and elsewhere uh, on the continent uh, as well, uh, that uh, the uh, the goal of nationalism uh, was was still quite popular, uh, even though uh, it had had mixed uh, success 
uh, in uh, in the years leading up to 1861. So uh, they come prepared to you know to speak to the British and say, uh, you know, you supported uh, Greek independence from Turkey. Uh, there was quite a bit of um, sentiment uh, in England and elsewhere for uh, uh, in favor of Italian unity. Uh, and why shouldn't we be treated the same way? We're uh, a people uh, perfectly capable of establishing independence, of uh, erecting a new nationalist government, and, and shouldn't we uh, be seen as, uh, as heroic nationalists? So they're, they're arguing... What is striking is that both North and South are arguing the same thing to the Europeans, that we are both the... Uh, we are both a legitimate nation, Although the Southerners are arguing it on behalf of these revolutions, the North, at least at first, is dances around the revolutionary heritage. I guess you can't go to the, the the crowned heads of Europe and say we support the people who want to put you in the guillotine. Right. Uh, and yet that doesn't work so well. The South has the upper hand. Emancipation really changes the the whole story. Uh, how does the North present itself after that? Well, uh, I think it was actually uh, Charles Sumner who, who pointed out to Lincoln, who urged Lincoln, uh, that uh, we need to speak to, to not just the crowned heads of Europe, but the people of Europe, uh, who uh, you know, by, this, uh, by this time had come to, to hate slavery. Uh, and by uh, moving uh, forward with emancipation, we can make the, uh, the ideolo- ideological nature uh, of the conflict quite clear, uh, that the Union is indeed uh, promoting liberty. Uh, both in uh, America and uh, the implication would be uh, in Europe and and around the world. Well, that and that puts the the Confederates now on on the back foot. If um, if the Confederacy is is a group of brave freedom fighters, that's one thing. But if the other side says, "Well, no, you're really not. You're defending slavery." Uh, what are Britain and France's view on slavery by the mid-19th century? Uh, among the people? Uh, well, people or governments, I suppose. Yeah, uh, well, uh, certainly uh, among the, the European people, both in Britain and France, uh, they're generally by this time uh, anti-slavery, against slavery. And, of course, uh, Great Britain had uh, fought to uh, suppress the slave trade uh, over the course of the 19th century. Uh, and in 1848 in France, the uh, the, uh, the French uh, Empire abolished slavery in its uh, its colonial holdings. So, um, among a wide array of Europeans, by uh, the 1860s, slavery was seen as a thing of the past, uh, uh, a, a barbaric institution that uh, the world was uh, prepared to move on from. So, so how can the Confederates possibly argue against that? What what do they pull out? Well, they they pull out the uh, the history of uh, of the nineteenth century in Europe, uh, and uh, they uh, point to uh, the instability uh, that uh, conflicts over workers' rights, uh, over um, the uh, the rights of the common man, uh, had created uh, in European nations, uh, and they argue uh, that perhaps slavery uh, was a more stable basis uh, to move forward. Um, uh, in the modern world, that by uh, enslaving the working class, uh, a, a black working class, uh, it would ensure liberty for whites, uh, and uh, that would allow the South to avoid uh, the types of class conflict uh, that had begun uh, to trouble uh, Europe 
uh, and, it, and indeed had, had doomed some of the revolutions of 1848. So it's a, a, a bold argument, not simply apologizing for slavery or saying it's, it's you know, culturally uh, just you know, who we are, we have to live with it, but saying this is actually the most forward-looking way to go into the 19th, into the 20th century, that this would prevent uh, class conflict. They they tie it in with arguments about socialism and communism as well, don't they? Yeah, that was one of the most uh, interesting findings that I had uh, uh, in, in working on this project. Uh, the Confederates were well aware of what socialism and communism meant. Um, I think uh, the, the Genovese's uh, pointed out that uh, so far nobody's found evidence that they read Karl Marx, uh, his Communist Manifesto, which came out in 1848, but, uh, but they were quite aware of uh, the ideology uh, of, of socialism uh, and communism. Uh, and uh, they, uh, they discuss it uh, when the Civil War breaks out. Uh, one of the most, uh, I think, startling quotes I read um, again, uh, occurred in the, in the city of St. Louis, uh, in which uh, uh, pro-Southern uh, pro uh, secessionists uh, denounce uh, the 48ers as people red right through their kidneys, uh, using that color red uh, language that we associate with uh, the red baiting of the 20th century. Uh, but uh, they understood what socialism and communism meant uh, and for Southerners, uh, you know, foremost on their mind was the, the threat to what they saw as property rights and slaves. Uh, if uh, a government could take, pass taxation laws to uh, take property from its citizens, why, uh, why of course, couldn't it uh, do the same to slaves? Or, or the, the reverse, if they can take the slaves away, they could take any other property away. Sure. Uh, so, so you have this argument. Uh, one of your chapters you refer to white uh, republicanism in contrast to both the the red republicanism you just mentioned of, of, of socialism or communism, and the the black republicanism of anti-slavery. So the the Confederates position themselves between those two. They're still Republicans. Uh, it, what's significant to me there is all three are 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 still claiming the mantle of. of the American republicanism. Uh, is there any meaning left in that word by the time the Confederates are done with it, though? <laughs> um, well, I, th I think so. I, you know, the Confederates, uh, again, very well aware of their dilemma. They, uh, they sympathize with many of the revolutionary movements uh, of the 19th century, especially um, those uh, in favor of republicanism with, with a small r, in other words, representative government. Uh, South uh, very conscious that they were uh, that they were going to create a republic, uh, you know, not a uh, not a monarchy, um, but uh, they believed by 1861 that uh, republicanism or republican ideology had been become corrupted uh, in a number of ways. Uh, they, uh, of course, uh, disliked the, the the big R uh, Republicans in the United States, who they. Uh, constantly in the press referred to as black Republicans, uh, by which they meant uh, abolition, abolitionists, uh, people who uh, argued that slavery was incompatible uh, with a modern uh, representative government. Uh, and uh, they also quite frequently, uh, as we've discussed, uh, used the term red Republicans, uh, which uh, they equated with the radicals of Europe, the socialists and the communists. So uh, in some instances they called themselves white Republicans, 
Uh, in other words, uh, Republicans who would uh, offer representative government to the white race uh, and uh, not paint it with abolitionism or radical doctrines like socialism or communism. So uh, a, a, a conserv- you have the, the contradiction of the, the conservative revolution. Uh, in one sense, this goes back, I guess, to Emory Thomas writing about the Confederacy as a revolutionary experience, which was was a big deal when that came out to to make that argument. But uh, the 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 contradictions within it uh, are, are really brought home in, in what you write here. Something that I, I thought was interesting in how Americans interpreted these revolutions was that where where you had the revolutionary self-determination movements, not not the unification ones so much, but the ones where uh, the Poles want to separate or the Greeks or the Hungarians or any uh, or the Irish uh, want to have independence based on uh, ethnic or cultural identity. The United States doesn't have that uh, uh, in that that our our that our nation is defined by by subscription to the principles of the Declaration of Independence. It's a, a matter of choosing to come to the United States and be an American uh, rather than happening to be born into it. Uh, is, is it possible that the Confederacy is moving in this white republicanism that they're trying to establish a sort of ethnic cultural basis to replace a political basis? Uh, yeah, perhaps. I mean, many historians have pointed out that's one of the great weaknesses of, of the Confederate argument that they uh, were not ethnically or linguistically or even in many cases religiously uh, different than Northerners. Uh, so you know, where would be, there be a basis for nationality? Um, and uh, I don't know that they ever fully resolve it, but, but I would say that they uh, respond to those arguments in two ways. Uh, first of all, they uh, very much believe that they were the true inheritors of the revolutionary tradition. Uh, that they were preserving uh, the best aspects uh, of the American Revolution and uh, of the revolutions that had swept Europe. They uh, were, you know, like the Irish or the the Hungarians, fighting to establish national independence, uh, and were not becoming distracted uh, with uh, with these radical goals. Uh, and secondly, I think uh, the uh, commitment to slavery, uh, you know, they would have said, uh, makes us socially different uh, than the North uh, and gives us uh, a basis for nationhood. Uh, and and they also argued that the experience of war itself uh, gave them a claim uh, to nationhood. Uh, they said, we've demonstrated that we can repel northern armies. You know, how, uh, how long do you have to fight uh, in order, until the rest of the world uh, recognizes that you can indeed defend your nationhood? The you mentioned they're not linguistically separate from the North, and as someone who grew up in Michigan and now lives in Eastern North Carolina, I'm not sure we are. There's a certain amount of linguistic separation uh, uh, that I find locally, but uh, but the point is well taken that, that uh, you know language, religion, many other things are, are held in common. Well, this uh, I will leave for our listeners to get a copy of your book and find out. Uh, uh, and ponder the, the final question did the South create a nation, not an independent political uh, nation but a national community uh, does existence of uh, Confederate battle flag bumper stickers on pickup trucks today 150 years later 
give evidence that they did create something that deserves to be called a nation. Um, uh, with in thirty seconds, I hate to burden you that way. Uh, what do you think? Well, uh, they certainly believed that they created a nation, um, but uh, both the North and the South would have agreed that in the 19th century, the ultimate test of nationhood was uh, the, the ability to defend it. Uh, and uh, in, that, uh, in that argument, of course, they lost. Uh, they, were, they were not able to uh, defend their nationhood on the battlefield, uh, ultimately. Uh, but uh, during the war, of course, they, they thought that they had. Uh, and uh, you know, interesting that you bring up uh, the flag because, you know, as, as Drew Faust and, and other historians have shown, uh, they um, very eagerly as, during the war embraced these symbols of nationhood. Um, you know, uh, creating a national flag, uh, creating uh, songs that uh, established national unity. These cultural trappings of nationhood. They believed uh, that they had it, and they believed uh, that they had done it. Well, to f- listeners, to find out more about this, you'll want to get a copy of The Revolution of 1861. Andre, we are always too soon. We're out of time. But thank you for being on the show today. Well, thanks so much. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network.